Hello and welcome to the Anne Film Scoop. I'm Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phil McLear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's week 78. That's one year and six and a half months since the two weeks to flatten the curve lockdown. And, and uh, 14 weeks since, was, since it was revealed that Hunter Biden used the N word and the mainstream media has failed to report it. Um, Mimi Groves was not as lucky, and we've talked about Mimi Groves. On She's this, the fourteen. On this show. She used it when she was fourteen, and it was used to destroy her college uh, admissions when she was eighteen. Yeah. That's what happens when you're not part of the protected class in this country and, and in this world. So, uh, what's on the show today? Uh, first of all, we look at the stupid, cliched nine eleven losers. Uh, uh, why they are losers and why we lost the war in Afghanistan. From college to professors to former presidents, those who got it wrong will always get it wrong because they are wrong about everything. Um, and, and later, Phelan's going to be talking to Phil Kirpin about yes. COVID madness. Ma- ma- man- mandi- man- mandates. And madness. And madness. Delta, and the Delta variant. Yes and, yes, and then everyone's talking about the US Open star, uh, Emma Raducanu, uh, the, the Romanian British girl, uh, a Canadian girl. But did you know that her parents were unable to watch her victory in person? And do you know why? Because it's more Chinese Corona madness. We'll talk about that. And we're going to have the writer of the My Son Hunter movie in the house. Brian Godow is going to be here. And I'm going to interview him. Um, and we're going to look at some lovely messages from you. But first, you, I just have one question. And I just have to move the microphone for this. Who wears it better? And if you're on YouTube or anywhere, you can see it. Who wears it better, Top Cat or Anne McElhenney? Or Anne McElhenney. So we are the we are the la- we are the walking wounded. So Top Cat broke his right his left arm two months ago, and Anne McElhenney broke her clavicle. Right clavicle, right which clavicle. involves all the right parts of the, the right hand and the right bits of this. Yes, I broke my clavicle trying to trying to bring the news to you, by we the way. We were going to cover a court case over in Santa Monica Courthouse. And the, literally, there's a raised platform that says no protesting beyond this point. And uh, rather than paint a line in the sand, as they say, no protesting beyond this point, they decided to have a raised platform in the sand, which Anne McElhinney tripped over on her way to cover a court. Spectacularly tripped over on my way to court on Friday. And look at those hot firemen. I mean, and if you want to meet hot LA firemen, uh, you know, there are better ways, right? No, there has to be a better way to meet a hot um, fireman because... Oh, God, oh, God. Ready, miss? Let's get your legs under you. Ready? All right. The pain is so awful that you just don't care about anything. Like, I couldn't... It was so bad, I couldn't even look up. Just horrible situation. Anyway, we've had a week of... Doctors talking um, and deciding no surgery, yes surgery, no surgery. Well, anyway. So you're, gonna, you're not going to be present for a lot of this podcast yes. because you have to go and spend some quality time with your doctors and your surgeons. Uh, so we'll keep everyone very much informed on that. Uh, you're not going for surgery just yet, but shortly. But there's a lot of prep work to do and you have to go x-rays and EKGs and D- DCAs and RIPs and VCAs. And Don't mention RIP. Move know, on. Uh, so we move on. Yeah, so let's talk about the 9-11 losers. Let's talk about Jen N. Jackson, who's PhD. I'd love to read her PhD. She is an abolitionist, which I asked Phelan about because I, I, have no, I do know what the word abolitionist means, but I think... What does it mean nowadays? That's what I meant what does it mean nowadays what does it you know what, what does an abolitionist do of a friday night I cannot, nowadays i cannot tell you but an abolitionist but anyway she's also a writer and she's a professor and she's gender flux all pronouns 
but has to be referred to as they. Right. She's a columnist for Teen Vogue, um, but worst of all, she's a professor. Yeah, so she um, she has come to... Uh, she, over 9-11, she said, we have to be more honest about nine, what 9-11 was and what it wasn't. It was an attack on the heteropatriarchal capitalistic systems that America relies upon to wrangle other countries into passivity. It was an attack that... On the systems that many white Americans fight to protect. Can I ask Phelan a question? Yes. Yeah, because I'm not very well, so I have to ask questions about things I don't understand. Phelan, what's heteropatriarchal? Well, het- I'm actually impressed I was able to say that, by the way. Yeah. What's hetero? Hetero means not gay, is that right? It, it, so I, I get in this terms, it probably means no, heterosexual is, is well, homosexual. Homosexual is man on. Uh, uh, hetero in this. Particular context means people means normative, normal. Oh, normal. The mainstream, I think. Mainstream, you know, means that, that yeah, because uh, it means uh, mainstream, right? Mainstream patriarchal. So capitalist the pat- patriarchal, systems. right? So it's attack on the on the patriarchy, basically. That's boys, yeah, and, and men, yeah. right? Um, and their capitalistic systems. But the one, I mean, it's really great to know that Osama bin Laden was an early feminist. It attacking is. the patriarchal system. It's, it's it, you know, that is the level of scholarship that students are... Do you know, I read that and I thought of important children in our lives and I thought... Imagine. God preserve them and save them from contact with this woman. Yes. This is a terrible person. Yes. Um, and look at look at this. And, you know, she has a T-shirt. Flint still doesn't have clean water. Yeah, and you know what? I've got news for you, sweetie. You know why Clint doesn't... Flint no, actually, sorry. No, I, I, no, let me tell you one thing. Flint... Does have clean water. Oh, okay. Flint does have clean water. But if it ever Flint, had a problem, uh, by the way. Flint had one problem was that there was a, a ta- water goes through lead pipes like most places in America. But there's this thing, is a, a chemical you put in that neutralizes the lead. And they didn't put it in. The Democrats who ran Flint didn't put it in. The Democrats? And now they do because Flint went bust and they, and a man, you know, they do put it in. And the water is clean. You can drink it. Uh, the water is not contaminated. You can drink it. So stop spreading lies like that. Um, I mean, but it goes on. I mean, it's not just some weirdo professor. You know, you've got the New York Times. You know, they had a, a, a long, long interview with an FBI agent, you know, uh, you know, who basically left the FBI and leaked papers to journalists because you know was this what i've become um basically he he saw there was no difference uh between the fbi and the terrorists he was fighting so then we've got you know more new york times stuff look at these headlines here uh the legacy of america's post 9-11 turned to torture you know 20 years later we're still and it's like this these were enhanced interrogations yes Torture is, I mean, there's a legal definition of torture, and by no means did any of the treatment of the prisoners of, of Al-Qaeda rise to torture. It just didn't. And then, I, I, all I like is in this um, New York screen Times, grab, is below, like, torture? You want to talk about torture? The trial of the man accused of plotting the 9-11 attacks is at least another year away. They have been in custody, I think, for 10 or 15 years. Wow. And the trial is another year away. That is torture for the victims of 9-11. And it's very much like the court case we went to, actually, mm-hmm. over in Santa Monica. Ten years of, of court. And as Mark Stein, and we'll be coming to Mark Stein in a minute, Mark Stein said, in America, 
the, the process is the punishment. The judiciary system is so unfit for purpose yeah. that to be involved in it is a punishment in itself. Well, his court case with Michael Mann yes, he has now gone on for how long? It's, it's now in, in its 10th year. You talk uh, about term limits, by the way. There should be term limits on that. Yes. And there should be, there should be an, um, if the court system you know, can't work, can't work, then they should find somebody else to be in the court system. Well, the people that are there I think the term limits is good. I think limits is good. But Mark Stein said it so well, actually. I just felt, you know, we should just talk about what he said, you know. And he was going, you know, as he said in his latest column, go to Stein Online, S-T-E-Y-N. The official observances for the 20th century anniversary of 9-11 managed to be more, even more wretched and grotesque than I'd expected. The most obvious, uh, most obvious affront being George W. Bush's equivalence between the perpetrators of 9-11 and the perpetrators of 1-6, that is the, the January uh, riot at the, at the Capitol. He said they were both children of the same foul spirit, diminishing, you know, and as Mark Stein says, this diminishes the 3,000 victims of, um, 100%. You know, of, of 9-11. Oh, yeah. As Mark Stein says, and I'll quote him here, he said, declared, diminishing the 3,000 victims of 9-11 by comparing them to a congressman who had to hide in a station cu- stationary cupboard because some goofball was taking selfies with his feet up on the desk. Oh, yeah. You know, 20, as, 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 by the way, and I mean, this is, this is amazing. He says, he quotes, he says, 20 years ago, Mark Stein says, the 43rd president's entire executive branch totally failed the nation. Funny, I was talking to you about this at the weekend, right? Mm-hmm. And Mark, he quotes from his book, America Alone. You should read America Alone. He quotes, FAA command center. Do we want to think about scrambling aircraft? FAA headquarters. God, I don't know. This is a tape. This is a transcript. FAA command center. That's a decision somebody's going to have to make in the next 10 minutes. FAA headquarters, you know, everybody just left the room. Everybody just left the They evacuated the room, right? FAA headquarters, they were supposed to be protecting the skies above America, and they all just left the room. They all left the buildings. Everybody, you know, you're, as Mark Stein says, your federal government in action, and, and under Bush, no one paid a price for it. And, I, and, you know, George Bush, by the way, left the room. People, I don't know if people remember this. George Bush got into his plane after 9-11 and flew around, uh, because it was the most secure place to be up in the air. And people were wondering for hours and hours and hours. It was the where, is, where is he? Where is he, right? It was hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And these were long hours on 9-11. Yeah, these before, were lo- before he appeared. He didn't appear till the evening. And the attack happened at 9 o'clock in the morning. And... You know, everyone left the room. And as Mark Stein said, White House fed the Treasury, but not the IRS. He says, where they're still hard at it, you know, freezing the accounts of of, of, of insurrectionists' nine-year-old grandkids. He can do that now, you know. And I, mean, and I think the other thing that he said in that article, if I'm correct, my fellow is that the names of the people, the names of the extraordinary people on flight, on the United Flight 93, he didn't even name them. He didn't no. even say their names. I mean, one of the names, obviously, that, that I was thinking about over the whole days, uh, over, nine, over that weekend, and thinking about 20 years ago, where we were. We were living, yes, in, we were living in Bucharest in Romania at the time. But just reading, and, and I put it up on my Facebook because I thought it was so powerful, and a lot of you probably have read it, but Todd Beamer's transcript of his 911 call is to Lisa, you know, who was at the end of the line, this woman called Lisa. Yeah. Um, and that transcript is, it's unbelievable the bravery that this guy showed. This was an ordinary person. And it, it, it really, does, the contrast between the ordinary Todd Beamer and his behaviour under the most 
the most difficult possible circumstances that could be imagined versus the President of the United States on that day. Or, or by t- the way, who took off. Six, as Mark said, six months to the day. Maybe, did you read this? Maybe you don't know this. Six months to the day after 9-11, what do you think the Immigration Naturalization Services did? Go on. They mailed out two student visas to, oh. to Muhammad Atta and Marwan al Shahe at months. their Florida flight school. Oh, yeah. Uh, as as Mark says, unfortunately, Messrs. Atta and Shehe were unable to uh, unable to avail themselves of their new American visas, as they had le- uh, neglected to have their mail forwarded to their new address, Big Smoking Hole in the Ground, Lower Manhattan. You know that is that is your federal government at work. So that you know they're they're handing out visas to people who, to the most photographed people on the planet. Uh, and you think so? It's almost like it's almost like no hand went into dealing with that visa. No. It's almost like a machine dealt with it. Yes, because as you say, the photographs of them. I mean, sure, no one didn't know Muhammad Atta's name. It was like, but also the, you've got all these um, agencies in the world in America. These intelligence agencies, you know, the Peter Strzok, by the way, and Lisa Page and Mueller and all those people, all those straight shooting, hard hitting FBI guys strutting around Washington. I mean, they're on high alert. They're trying to find out all the conspirators of 9-11. Would it not, is there, was there not a watch list? Was any time these guys' names come up in any database anywhere, we need to know now. So, but imagine the process of issuing them visas. That, you know, a lot of people have to press buttons there. Oh, yeah. And There's po- a lot of hands involved and, in and that. Post it's not it, one, yeah, it's not yeah, one and person. And stick it in an envelope. And yeah, nobody not- noticed that and, and said, this has to stop. Uh, and what did George Bush do? He acted decisively, as says Mark Stein. Decisively? And moved, yes, and moved Janice Sposato sideways to the post off. And I, I, this is almost like a joke, to the post of Assistant Deputy Executive Associate Commissioner for Immigration Services. Um, as uh, as he says, where she would need a really lar- large business card. But that, you know, and uh, Mark makes the point, America is a land that rewards failure, right? As he says, see General Miley's che- war chest, you know, uh, of medals. Oh, yeah. yes. But and we, we, when we spent that year in D.C. when we first came to America, and that's why our telephone numbers are D.C., one's uh, a matter of eternal shame to us. Um, we we found that too, was DC particularly, was a land that rewarded failure. Yes. That, you know, hey, what, 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 what you know, give me $20,000 yours and I will make your documentary, $20,000 a month and I'll make your documentary successful. Well, what did you do in the past? Well, I, I ran Romney's outreach, digital outreach campaign. So, excuse me, you ran Romney's digital outreach campaign and you're a complete failure and loser and you're still in business? You know, I ran John McCain's uh, outreach to Hispanics, you know. So you, you basically lost uh, all these Hispanic votes for McCain and and you want me? You want me to? You know, and and they do, and people pay them, and they get hired by the next presidential. Well, you, this is why it was I, so I, easy for Trump to come in and not hire any of them. You know, you imagine Trump didn't hire any of them, which is why they all hated him. He didn't hire any of them, and did better than all of them. Well, it's like Newt Gingrich, by the way. I mean, Newt Gingrich was wrong about everything, and he's still rocking on, and not only rocking on, but people are asking him for advice because he's so interesting to yes. listen to. Yeah. And he was just wrong about everything. He was cer- certainly like so wrong about the election. Yeah. It's like yeah. it's, it's a joke. 
you know, you would think that if you were that wrong about something, that I'd be like, well, you know, we're going to have yeah. to part ways with you now. We're not going to pay any more money because you're just wrong about everything. But not not in DC. I'd actually make the distinction to you with you with Mark Stein. Actually, um, I don't think America is the country that rewards losers. I think Washington, Failure, Washington DC rewards failures and rewards people who are, you know, who have distinguished themselves as being wrong about everything. They get particularly singled out for for uh, promotion and elevation in Washington, D.C. That certainly was our experience when we were there. It's an extraordinary yeah. town, and we didn't like it for yeah. that very reason. And I'm, not, and I'm not talking about the consultancy class on the Democrat side. I'm talking about the consultancy class on the, on the conservative side. Oh, no, side. the biggest enemies of, of conservatives are the consultancy class on, 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 the, on the right. Um, and they, show, they really showed their faces during Trump. Um, you know, as, as Mark Stein said, you know, Bush never mentioned the heroes of Flight 93. And he says he, he retreated to the same lame tropes of the ruling class, yakking on about nativism and religious bigotry. And as, as he says, religious bigotry, but it was, it's, 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 it's Christian religious bigotry, not Islamic religious bigotry. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an immigration problem. And the immigration problem was that these 20, 19 or 20 hijackers got in uh, with without even following the basic rules, and you know, he makes this an incredible story in the Seven Eleven parking lot in Falls Church, Virginia. We know Falls Church yeah, well. We Four young men obtained their picture ID with which they boarded the flight on September 11. They did so by bribing a Salvadorian illegal immigrant to certify they all lived at his address. Hundreds lived in this modest flat. It's part of the non-gaming of the non-system that is not only tolerated, but venerated by the uni party. And he calls the, de- the, the ruling class of the Democrats and the, the, the Republicans the uni party. And you'd think a simple thing like that, like, you know, wouldn't you think that somebody having hundreds of people staying at the same address would, would uh, somehow, some of the adults of that vast intelligence service would pick up on that. Yes, he says it's because of this terrible, terrible immigration system that Todd Beamer, Jeremy Glick, Tom Burnett and the 36 other passengers and crew of Flight 93 are now dead. And But, you know, he says, yet speaking at their memorial, Bush is so low and unworthy that he cannot resist the driveling, mawkish sentimentalization of immigration, in fact, enable the murder of Beamer and all. Um, I love this bit. George W. Bush is so attentive to his own security that ahead of a state visit to the UK, he demanded the Queen replace every window at Windsor Castle. Every window at Windsor Castle. Yes, yes. Her Majesty told him to bugger off as well she should. Secure in their bubbles, the jet-setting globalists will never find themselves at the mercy of the fake ID record. A racket and the other pathologies they loose upon their subjects. And then later in the article, uh, he says, I'm with Her Majesty. Bugger off, Bush. <laughs> so, yeah. so look, I think we're, we're Anne is now uh, going off to spend, you're just going off to spend quality time with, with, you. A, with a whole bunch of doctors. But before I go, I wanted to, I, oh, wanted yeah. to, I wanted to call out a really nice message that came that cheered me up as I was dealing with my pain from Pinhead, by the way. And all I've got to say to everyone listening here, be Pinhead. So here's what she said, or he said. I recently gave a small amount to My Son Hunter movie and discovered the Ann and Phelan scoop. So much fun, laughs, and serious information packed into this podcast. Loved the cheese story. What's the cheese story? The cheese story about the wedding that we went to in Ireland, the very, 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 very posh wedding of our relative, and where I spotted this massive cheese board, like, 
really, I'm not sure. A cheese board twice. The, yeah, it's the size of this table. That's bigger than this. I remember it went on for tables. Oh, it was unbelievable. Anyway, yes. So she liked that story and how I took, I asked the girl getting married if she wouldn't mind if I took the cheese with me. because after, after it was. After it was gone over and pawed yes. over by everybody else. But uh, there was a lot of cheese there. I knew it would never be eaten. Anyway, she loved the cheese story. I really want to meet other fans and start groups. Here's an interesting idea. To watch and discuss the latest episodes while enjoying some of the recipes. FYI. I send my my star rating, and every time I tapped on a star, I give this show five stars. So that's on the that's on the Apple, Apple. podcast so uh, please, icon. So please do that. Please give us a star rating, and please leave a message because it really matters yeah. an awful lot to us. And we don't have a recipe this week. I'm very sorry because of me. Because of your disablement. Yes, yes. but Phelan's going to talk to Brian Godawa now. And yeah, so please leave a comment on YouTube. We read them. We, we try and respond to them all. But also leave a comment on the Apple uh, a podcast uh, if you're listening to this on the on your apple but go in there leave a comment leave a star rating it's important it pushes us up to the ratings and it's important for and le- leaves it easier for other people to find us so you're going to have to spend some quality time with your doctors yes now, then. so um yes so you're going to have surgery in a few days i should say to all of you is just don't break your clavicle don't break anything actually um but i have to say the clavicle is a bit of a disaster now um i'm fairly disabled but anyway um it could be worse. I suppose it could be worse. I could have hit my. I could have broken my head in two. You know. Actually, this, that's a great picture of you, and I'm going to get a picture now of you. Magda, can you give me the phone? Okay, I'm, I'm going to take a picture now. I'm going to say this to everyone, and then we're going to put the picture up. Yes, it's a great picture of you. Of and me, your, of Hopalong, and the and the dog, and the, and the patient, and, and, the, and the patient. There you go. All right. Um, so. Yeah, that's it for me. So, um, okay, I'm gonna go. I next interview- time I'm here, I will have had the operation. Yeah, well, we wish you the best. Huh? Thank you. I'm sure everyone out there, send your go on the comments now and wish Anne all the best, please, in her operation. And tell uh, me your clavicle stories. Everyone has a clavicle story. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I oh. didn't know what a clavicle was, but I know what a clavicle is now, and I know exactly. Well, where we put it is. actually we'll put the X-ray. Oh, of you your can clavicle. look at my X-rays. Yeah, my very impressive X-ray, very impressive. Wow, what a clavicle! Yeah. What a clavicle! Ooh. What a broken clavicle! Never saw a clavicle that before. Yeah. Um, okay, listen, uh, I'm going to interview Phil Kirpin now, and uh, I interviewed him earlier, and then I'm going to interview, and then I'm going to wrap up the show but good luck with your clavicle thank you thanks bye Bye. so uh, we're joined now by Phil Kirpin Uh, Phil is a great friend of ours and an unlikely hero of the Chinese virus wars Um, he's been doing invaluable work on on the story and uh, how it's being used by politicians to undermine our freedoms uh, we first, I think I first met Phil maybe 10 years ago when you worked for Americans for Prosperity. And I've been following his progress ever since. And I say he's an unlikely hero because actually, you know, he's president of the American, an organization called American Commitment and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. And really, that was a free, that is a free market, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a free market organization. You know, you, and a free trade and that kind of those kind of policies and eco- economics, rather than what you're what you've become really famous for now is looking at the attempts by people to use the virus to undermine freedoms and use dodgy science. Am, am I correct in that, Phil? Or, or welcome to the show, Phil. And, yeah, and, and uh, tell me if I tell me if I've completely mischaracterized you. No, that's about right. I mean, look, I mean, uh, normally I work on fiscal issues, uh, regulatory issues, that kind of stuff, uh, energy policy, healthcare policy, tech policy, but everything economic to your point. But, you know, it's uh, hard to focus on things like taxes and spending 
when there's a dictate shutting down half the businesses in town or all the businesses in town or when the schools are all closed. And so, I mean, I just think the, uh, the heavy handedness of the COVID interventions has been so over the top that it's eclipsed all of the normal economic fights that we have. And until we can move past the COVID craziness, it's hard to focus on the usual economic Yeah, they say bad generals uh, fight the last war. Uh, You're not fighting the last war, you're fighting the current war, and we're very grateful for that, actually. Uh, Yeah, bad generals always always can win the last war, you know, but they don't realize the world has changed. The world has changed. I mean, I remember when this started, we... We were at a, we were at dinner with you know you know someone who who you you might back then have called a conspiracy theorist right you know has a lot of, had a lot of strange views and I remember her telling us uh, that um, not strange but you know views outside the mainstream telling us that you know this is early days of the of of the COVID there's going to be vaccine passports there's going to be mandates and all and we're going no 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 that's not like there's no suggestion of that at all. And she's going, it's coming, it's coming. And I'm going, no, no, no. And I, of course, I seem to be spending a lot of this uh, virus time apologizing to people who I maligned early on in in when the virus first arrived. So at the moment, we have we just we have a vaccine mandate from Joe Biden from the Biden administration. Tell us what that mandate is, and is it needed? Do you think it's needed, and and what effect is it going to have? Well, there's sort of two parts to it. Uh, One is that federal employees and federal contractors, so companies that contract with the federal government, are required uh, to have all of their employees vaccinated. And there is no opt-out. There's no testing alternative. It's if you want to keep your job, you have to get vaccinated or at least sign an attestation saying that you are vaccinated. So I'm sure some federal employees will just lie, say, yes, I'm vaccinated, sign the form. But of course, making a false statement to the federal government is potentially criminal. And so, you know, some will quit instead, obviously, uh, rather than, than lie about that. And that's the, the more, that's the most heavy handed uh, mandate is the one for federal employees and employees of contractors of the federal government. Now, the other thing that was announced by the president is a private sector mandate. And this is sort of an indirect mandate because what he's done is he's asked the uh, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to issue a workplace emergency temporary standard that would require all employees of every company with more than 100 employees uh, to uh, either to have every employee either be vaccinated or submit to weekly testing uh, for the coronavirus. And uh, there, we haven't seen the uh, the actual regulations not been written yet. So we don't know exactly what the details will be and and, uh, therefore the legal vulnerabilities and so forth. Uh, But just on the headline version that we got from the president, there's a a lot of curiosity in that because it's hard to understand why companies that have 100 employees would have different virus risks than companies with 99. It's based on total employees in the company, not uh, the number of workers in a particular location, which also seems kind of strange if it's supposedly a workplace safety regulation, but perhaps the dead giveaway of what this really is, is uh, one of the liberal pundits, I forget which one, wrote on Twitter that this is just a backdoor to a national vaccine mandate. They're making it look like a workplace regulation to get around the president's uh, previous statements that he can't mandate it for uh, you know a blanket national mandate. And uh, the White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, retweeted it 
And so they're essentially admitting, yes, this is our workaround, our, our backdoor to a, a national vaccine mandate. There's so much, there's so much, and what you just said, there's so much, you know, no opt-out uh, for federal employees. And, you know, look, you'd be crazy if you were to lie to the federal government. They will come after you like a ton of bricks, you know, unless you're a Clinton or uh, an FBI agent who who forged a uh, FISA warrant, you know, or or stole classified documents, then you get a slap on the wrists. Um, but if they want to come after you, you, you will spend, you know, a year in jail, you know, and lose everything uh, just, just for taking on the federal government. So I wouldn't advise anyone to lie about it. Uh, and uh, no, so no opt-out. Of course, the federal government is so massive now. That is a massive number of people that that's going to affect. And uh, then, as you say, this ninth, this arbitrary cutoff of a hundred people. I mean, the, the, this is a it's a very liberal idea too that that big business needs more protection than small business. Look, I remember when I we first started doing what we do. I made a documentary called "Mind Your Own Business," and it was about mining companies in developing countries and uh, how, how, how th- th- that they bring healthcare, that they bring computer industries, you know, because mining now is high tech, right? They bring people learn skills, people learn, people learn international standards. I remember driving through Madagascar uh, with, with the guy from the, this local from the mining company driving us. And he suddenly stops the vehicle on this treacherous road and pulls it over to take a phone call. Now that was in the early days of mobile phones and no one pulled in. Uh, everyone was on the phone in their car, right? So he'd been told if you, you know, the international standard was in these mining companies, if you answer your phone while driving our vehicle, you get fired. He pulled in because the, the international standard of a multinational was, was hugely superior to anything local. I mean, and people were saying to me, oh, multinational companies are terrible. Big com- big companies or big companies are terrible, small companies. And I'm going, you don't get on a plane built by Joe's mechanics. You get on a plane built by Boeing. You love big business, right? Big, You know big business is safer than smaller businesses. They have, you know, and so the idea that big businesses need more protections than smaller business or need to be need more regulations in smaller business just doesn't stand up to common sense. Well, I think they wanted to be able to say, you know, we're not imposing a regulatory burden on mom and pop. And so they just, they picked this number of a hundred employees. I actually think they're going to have some legal uh, difficulty on this question. If they wanted to claim that it's a workplace safety standard, then it should have been based on the number of employees in a particular location, not the number of employees in the whole company, which just seems arbitrary. So I, I do think they have, uh, some potential uh, problems on that front. Let's let's put all science aside, whether it's good science, bad science, and different science. This is also this is a hugely political decision by the Biden administration. They're doing it with an eye to, or maybe it's an idea. Is it ideological or is it political? Right? Are they are they blinded by ideology, or is this a move to to win votes in the midterms to make the Republicans appear extremist, uncaring, anti-science? Which is it? Is it ideological or political, do you think? Uh, I think it's principally political. Look, I mean, this is an administration uh, that saw total collapse in the president's job approval rating following the disaster in Afghanistan. He went from a very strong net positive position to underwater in most polls uh, almost instantly. 
And it really changed just the way people perceive the fitness of the president for office and the competence of the administration more broadly. And I think that what the, the political calculation behind the big speech and what they're doing now is they, they see an opportunity to polarize the country between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And they know that the vaccinated is a significantly larger group than the unvaccinated. And so if they can successfully polarize the country and rally the vaccinated to their side, uh, they think that shores them up politically. And I think that's the real motivation behind it. It's hard otherwise to understand the contradict the, the, the fundamental contradiction in the president's speech and all of these new policies where he says the vaccine is great, it works, vaccinated people are extremely safe, and unvaccinated people are a threat to the vaccinated. It is so, it, it, there's such dissonance yeah. between those two ideas uh, that it, it just feels like scapegoating and polarization for the sake of polarization. So I think it is politically motivated. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I should point out here that I'm I'm vaccinated, right? Uh, but uh, and then we're, we're talk, what we're talking about here is a the vaccine mandate uh, and b whether um, well, and, then, and now I want to actually talk about whether whether it's actually effective. And, and we're not scientists, right? Uh, but we do look at statistics and we do look at reports. And uh, you're right. I mean, either you, either these people believe the vaccine is 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 the shield that it says it is, and if it is, then why do they care about unvaccinated people? Or it's it's not. And I mean, certainly the reports. I mean, here's a headline from the Irish Times. 54% of people in hospitals in Ireland, where, where I'm from, are, are vaccinated. And uh, you, also, I think there was a report from Britain last week uh, about the number of people hospitalized and dying from, from COVID uh, that seems to... Uh, tell, tell, tell us about that. Uh, it was the number of positive tests. So it was the case counts. And what they actually found in the most recent uh, UK data, and by the way, the United States has the worst data in the world in terms of vaccinated versus unvaccinated. You can't get a, any kind of a handle on the US data. So we need to look to other countries to get a better understanding of what's going on. They almost all have better data than the US. Uh, and uh, there was a report that came out in the UK on Friday that had uh, the rates of infections for both vaccinated and unvaccinated broken out by age. So they had, you know, in this age, you know, in 10 to 20 and 20 to 30 and so forth, um, vaccinated versus unvaccinated rates. So the number of positive tests they were getting per 100,000 vaccinated people in this age group versus per 100,000 unvaccinated in the same age group. And they actually now found that, I think this was a report that covered the last two weeks. Uh, they found that over the period of that report, the case rate is now higher in the vaccinated in the UK between the ages of 40 and 79 than the unvaccinated case rate, which is to say that and that's a pretty big age range. That's covering, you know, that's yeah. that's covering a huge portion of the population. Exactly. Uh, they're now yeah, finding Britain, especially, rate, I think, which Britain has a, as an older demographic, yeah. I think. So, so I mean, so the, let the, me just they, they did. But let me just add, because I think this is important. They did, however, find that the hospitalization and death rates were much lower among the vaccinated. So I think that then this is consistent with data we're seeing from other places. Uh, the vaccine is just not very effective at stopping transmission and mild cases. And so you still get a case, you can still get a significant number of cases among vaccinated people, but they're much less likely to be severe. 
than if, right. than if you're vaccinated. So uh, there's a lot of benefit from the vaccine, but it doesn't prevent you from becoming a case for the most part. It prevents you from being hospitalized or dying. So there's a lot of benefit to the individual who gets the vaccine. But mm. in terms of the societal benefit, uh, I think it's very clear now that we should not, you, know, you shouldn't care very much whether someone else makes a different choice about the vaccine in terms of the implication uh, for your own risk and your own exposure. Uh, because even if someone is vaccinated, they can still get it, they can still transmit it uh, at a similar rate to people who are not. And so, you know, the idea that all of the data is now showing this increasingly, and then they roll out these mandates and uh, passports and, and sort of policies that are premised on the idea that you're safer if other people are vaccinated means that we've now got policies that are completely unhinged from what we're seeing in the data. You think this is a, a political decision here? Uh, is it to rally the base? Is it to, is it to, yeah, is I think it to, it's to rally. I think it's to reconsolidate the democratic base and to polarize the country between vaccinated and unvaccinated. And I think that they see that as particularly important going into the fall and the winter, because, you know, there's still a lot that we don't understand about the seasonality of this virus, obviously, but just at the most basic level, the South was bad last summer and it was even worse this summer. Yes. And I think they're very worried that the North which was bad last winter, will be even worse this winter. And I think that they want to create uh, a, a pre-existing scapegoating narrative yeah. to deflect uh-huh. blame and to say, it's not you, you did the right thing, it's these people, blame yeah. them. And I think- No, no I mean, it's, the media is terrible. I mean, you know, all these stories about Florida, the huge rise in cases in Florida in recent months. And it's like, have you been to Florida in the summer? Um, you know, this is this is a disease of contact, right? It's uh, you know, their indoor season in the South. It's their indoor the season, summer. right? I, mean, I, I, I remember at the beginning, I have a relative who's a doctor, and they said viruses are are more dangerous in winters because people are indoors, right? You know, Florida in summer, people are indoors. People, you know, if you're outdoors, the, the chances of you catching a virus are are very limited. And but not one media report would give Florida the credit of saying this is their, as you say, this is their indoor season. So we've had the South's indoor season, and now we're going to have the North's indoor season. And of course, there's going to be a rise of cases in the North. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So you know, if the so I think. They want, they want to be able to say, you know, yeah, in the South, it was the horrible evil governors. It's their fault. In the North, you know, the governors did everything right and they're wonderful, and, but it was those bad unvaccinated people, however small their numbers might have been, they're to blame. And so I think that's why they're trying to polarize, you know, ahead of heading into the winter. Yeah, yeah, actually, it's a good point, actually. Um, I mean, have we had any breakdown about the, the geographical spread? I mean, are, are there more... Are there less unvaccinated people in the north, in say New York and New Jersey and places like that, or do we know that? Well, Florida's got a pretty high vaccination number. They're kind of right in the middle. They're average nationally. Uh, so some of these other states are low. So states like Mississippi and Alabama are much lower uh, than other states. Uh, but it, that that really wasn't the issue in Florida, especially among seniors. Florida has a very high vaccination rate. Of course. Uh, in the north, we've got a very different uh, situation than some of these southern states. It's not generally the political conservatives and the Trump supporters in the North were not vaccinated. It's mostly the racial minorities. And we've got 
Uh, you know, New York City, I think it's 30, you know, the, the vaccination of black residents is still under 40 percent. It's 30 something. And so, you know, when you talk about a vaccine passport system in New York City right now where you can't go inside a restaurant, you can't go to a theater, you can't you know, all of these cultural institutions, museums mm-hmm. now all require yeah. proof of vaccination. In a sense, you know, they're excluding uh, in a sense, it's racial discrimination. Yes. Uh, yeah, know, yeah. It's, uh, it certainly has that effect. And, and that's largely the population that they're excluding. And uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of how they navigate the reporting on on that aspect of it. If we do have you know a high disease burden among the unvaccinated in the north, it's going to be disproportionately minority. You know, this is the the thing liberals do. They talk about racial uh, uh, disparate outcomes, right? So if minorities are seen to be less prominent in universities or in work. So this workplace or that workplace or in this group or that group, it's the, it's because of discrimination. Uh, if minorities are excluded from restaurants and cultural institutions and state buildings in New York uh, because they don't have vaccines, then that's there. We just say that's just uh, the way of the world. Uh, so they, they're so uh, they, they cherry pick uh, what where they want to cry racism. Um, and another thing is. I mean, how do they think they're going to get, I mean, do they want people to be vaccinated? Because if you wanted people to be vaccinated, um, you wouldn't call them idiots. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't, right? It's like they don't really want these people to be vaccinated. Uh, they want an enemy. They want a scapegoat. They want this narrative because, the, I mean, they're, they're paying hundreds of millions, probably billions to marketing companies, to to psychological experts, how to get your message out. And they're obviously, they're not telling them, well, the way way you'll get this message out is you call people idiots, you call them fascists, you call them racists, you call them rednecks, all the things that they are doing, right? And by the way, the Democrats are great at getting a message and spreading it out to their supporters. So it looks like they don't want people to be vaccinated. I don't know that they're, I don't know if they thought through that well. I think that uh, it's certainly having that effect. I don't know if it's intentional, but look, I mean, there's a massive trust deficit uh, in this country. People don't trust politicians. They certainly don't trust, you know, public health experts and public health authorities. And so, you know, when they say, you know, you've got to get vaccinated, we're going to make you, we're going to force you, we're going to lock you out of stuff. We're going to make you lose your job. Uh, If somebody wasn't convinced that it was in their best interest to get vaccinated before, and now you're saying, you know, we're going to do all these horrible things. You're not going to convince them. You may, under duress, they some of them may go along with it just yes. to be able to live their life, but uh, they're going to do so reluctantly, and yes. they're certainly not going to, to change their mind. And frankly, I think that uh, the number one problem that they've made uh, that causes suspicion of them on the vaccine and all related issues is they refuse to recognize that people who are already infected have very strong immunity. We've got so many studies on this now. And uh, people who've already been infected have very strong immunity without the vaccine, and they have the highest rate of adverse reactions because their body's already seen the virus, and so they get the vaccine, they're more likely to have an adverse reaction. I think that if they uh, if they designed a public health campaign where they said it's really important for people who haven't been infected before to get vaccinated, yeah, uh, that exactly. that they would have wow. much, it would be received much more favorably uh, because it would have logic to it. Yeah, it is, what we have it, now. Yes. Yeah, it makes common sense, right? It, it appeals to people. Look, if you have, I mean, look, I mean, they've gotten me to the stage where I'm kind of sheepish to to admit I'm vaccinated, right? Well, here's the here's the. Here's I feel like I an idiot, you know. Go ahead. Look, I think I think 
almost everyone is going to get this virus. All right. Uh, we, we've every wave we say, oh, maybe this will be the last wave. Then there's another wave. And, you know, we're at whatever it's at now, 50 or 60 percent of the population in many states has already had it. Uh, and yet it doesn't seem to be slowing down, which means it's going to come. But it's going to be 89. It's going to be over time. I think nearly everyone will be exposed to this, which means you're not going to run and hide. You're not going to stop it with a mask. You're not going to stop it with a lockdown. Uh, the question, I think, and the reason that there's a lot of value to the vaccine, especially if you're in a risk category, you're overweight or you're in the elderly category. Uh, the, the reason there's a lot of benefit to the vaccine is if you've had the vaccine first, you're much less likely to have a severe outcome. You're less likely to be hospitalized and die. You're not going to avoid probably getting sick, though. Everyone's going to get the virus sooner or later. It's just a question, I think, of you know how mild can you make that first encounter with the virus mm. is really where the benefit of the vaccine comes in. Uh, for people who've already had that first encounter with the virus, there's very little additional benefit. Uh, there's a little bit. Uh, but I mean, like even the CDC... You know, the big study they put out to claim that prior infected people can benefit from the virus was this Kentucky study. And they headlined it, you know, twice as twice as likely to be reinfected if you haven't had the vaccine than if you had. For people who've already had it, they said, mm. if you don't get the vaccine, you're twice as likely to be reinfected. And then you drill down into the numbers and it was like 0.04% risk of being reinfected without the vaccine. You can cut it in half to 0.02. And it's like, okay, well, yes, you could cut it, but in absolute terms, it's essentially near zero anyway. And so it's not that there's no benefit, but the way they're presenting it uh, is not, is, is deceptive, I would it's say. It's deceptive, about- of course. I mean, and look, again, if they wanted, if they really, really wanted people to be vaccinated, they wouldn't be so deceptive. I mean, they'd be a lot more uh, clinical and a lot more, and you know, there's only so many resources, right? And why don't they focus them on people who need the resources. Related to that, they, they also, in my judgment, should stop claiming that masks provide protection or they should be honest that any protection is extremely minimal uh, and you know not even should in the same conversation as the vaccine because instead they say mask and vax, anti-vax, anti-mask, mm. mask and vax, almost as if they're interchangeable. And then you see these heartbreaking stories of, you know, in, in, for instance, I, I saw this story over the weekend that in Miami, three school teachers died of COVID. And you look at the picture, all three of them were, were very overweight. They were all African-American. And then you read in the story, it says they, they all wore masks all the time and they were unvaccinated. And say, so, okay, well, you know, I think those are probably people who were mistakenly led to believe that if you had a mask, you were protected and you didn't need to worry about the vaccine. And so, you know, the, 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 uh, the refusal to just prevent accurate information as opposed to prevent, you know, all this whole series of so-called noble lies that are all about, yeah. you know, they, instead of just telling the truth, they try to say what they think you need to hear to behave in the way they want you to behave. And yeah. uh, it ends up backfiring. Oh, no, of people, course it does. People don't trust them, so they don't behave the way they want. Yeah, them. no, no, people don't trust them. And people get false sense of security too, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and behave accordingly. Yeah. How's the Republican Party doing in all this? I mean, are, are they... Uh, is it, where are they? I mean, it's a very weird situation. I, this is why I think maybe Biden's on to something politically, right? He's, he's sort of wrong. I mean, there's no solid opposition against him, is there? It's, it's people like you and me questioning. Uh, it's there's no there's no real solid response to him, is there? To the administration? Well, it's tough. I mean, I think that uh, most elected Republicans don't really know how to navigate these vaccine issues because uh, 
they, they do think the vaccine's beneficial uh, by and large, uh, but they've got a segment of their own base that thinks that the vaccine is dangerous. Yes. And it's against the vaccine. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're sort of hesitant to even talk about it because, yeah. you know, they don't want, on the one hand, they could anger the media on the other, they can anger a lot of their base. Generally, you know, taking a nuanced position yes. is not easy to do in sound bites and in media yes. coverage. And so you know, they don't have the opportunity to talk at length the way we've been talking. So yes. most of them shy away from, you know, taking public yes. positions or they try to hedge themselves in different ways. And, uh, you know, that makes it difficult. I do think that the coerciveness of what the administration is now proposing presents an opportunity for Republicans to say, look, you know, I think there's benefit of the vaccine. I think people should should do it uh, if it makes sense for for their situation. Talk to their doctor, but it should not be a mandatory condition of employment. We should not separate people out based on vaccination status for testing programs. And you know, we certainly shouldn't have the federal government dictating it from Washington. And that is a little bit of a sweet spot for Republicans. The idea of yes. you know leave it up to localities, private sector. Don't have Washington dictating it from on high, uh, and, and certainly not. By executive order, if you're going yeah. to do it, at least have the decency to vote in Congress. So there, there are a lot of aspects of this Biden proposal that should make Republicans more comfortable in fighting back than they've been kind of on the, the you know the more general issue. I really, we really have to go here, but I, I, to me, the, you know, one of the more amusing or shocking parts of this is you, you remember before COVID, there was a significant anti-vax movement in America, um, as in people not wanting their children vaccinated. Um, and it was, it was, you know, the, the media may not have really highlighted this, but it was actually a very, it was led by liberals. It was, it was heavily focused in, in blue areas and rich blue areas. They were, the anti-vaccine movement was a movement of upper middle-class women, mostly liberal women uh, who didn't trust big pharma. That aspect of the anti-vax movement has seemed to have just disappeared now. They're the biggest cheerleaders for almost mandated vaccines. Is that correct? Or is there an element? Well, there's still, there's still, you know, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s group. And uh, there, there definitely are still sort of vaccine skeptics on the left that have gotten very involved in sort of all these fights. But I, I think that, you know, sort of by and large, the uh, the pushback has come from the right, uh, just because the issues become so polarized and, and politicized. And, and sort of those are the comfortable party lines that people fall back into. But I, I will say this, you know, I've, I've, always been very mocking and dismissive towards those people in the past. <laughs> and I still generally disagree with them from what I've been able to understand of the yeah. science of these vaccines, but I'm far less dismissive than I yeah. was in the past because uh, I'm not sure that we can defer to authorities and assume that they are uh, representing exactly. things, yeah. uh, you know, accurately. And you know, I think that's a major potential sort of external ongoing continuing harm of the way this has all been handled, totally. which is, you know, I'm not sure these institutions will be able to rebuild their credibility. Yeah, t- totally. No, no. As I say, I've spent most of the time of uh, of of the virus, you know, apologizing to people who I'm possibly I had dismissed as conspiracy theorists before. Not not apologizing for uh, for you know certain aspects of it. But I still think they're wrong. I'm right. But you know, they were saying they said lots of things that have come through about this particular uh, era virus era and uh you know and of course that makes me you know that that just re- 
reinforces their beliefs that all the other things that they think that maybe are not true are true. And it also destroys any trust that they have in CDC, any trust they have in government, any trust they have in science. And, you know, they are the real losers here uh, and they're losing complete credibility. And when and you need them sometimes. Yeah, well, look, I mean, let's look at this whole booster issue. Okay, you know, the White House came out and said, we're going to do boosters by September 20th. The two top vaccine officials at the FDA both submitted their resignations. Uh, They have an article out in The Lancet today with a bunch of other international experts making the case on why boosters are not indicated based on the science that we have right now. Now, I don't know if those FDA officials are right or whoever's advising the White House is right, but I do know that having the president announce something politically from the White House that the FDA experts are disagreeing with is a total disaster whether yes. we're going to need boosters or not, because when the time comes and they do recommend boosters, how will anyone know if that was based on an actual assessment of the science or a political decision? Yeah, uh, funny. That, that actually, that's a that's a concern of mine. I'm I'm sitting here thinking, well, do I need a booster, right? And you know, and the answer is maybe, but you know, when the government tells you you have to have a booster, and as you say, when it's Joe Biden announcing it from the White House, uh and and th- but then when he tells you you have to wear a mask or uh, you know or it's and and you if you have a company more than a hundred people the science is that you need to, it needs to be mandated I don't trust them about anything and it's really hard to come to a a, a risk analysis you know and, and I, it's my own risk analysis like what what what's good for me and it's hard because I don't trust what they're saying now. Maybe these FDA scientists are full of it and they're the ones who are wrong. But how is someone supposed to determine that? You know, that's the and it's and so what ends up happening is people just don't know who to trust. They don't know what to do. And so it's it's the you know, if they were going to have a booster plan, you have to let the FDA do its analysis first and publish something. You can't announce it from the White House now. You know, even if it is needed, people won't believe it. So it's it was the it's a ridiculous way to operate. And. isn't isn't conducting this interview here because she's broken her clavicle 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 and you know for the first week of her broken clavicle there was a, a serious debate among her doctors whether she needed surgery or not we, we were taking lots of advice from lots of doctors and disinterested doctors and you know they say doctors differ patients die right but you know I don't mind doctors differing. I never, I never thought that any of these doctors were, were, you know, they were giving us their gen, their genuine opinion based on years of experience. But Joe Biden telling me whether Anne needs a clavicle, you know, uh, a mandate, or, or you know, is is a completely different uh, kettle of fish. And you know, Joe Biden interpreting these doctors' uh, thoughts and opinions. It destroys any confidence I have in both Joe Biden and then the doctor, even the doctors. And it's 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 something that's going to have long term consequences. And by the way, it's going to have really long term consequences for their other favorite pet projects like climate. Uh, like, you know, I mean, it just goes on and all, all the other science, you know, transgender, you know, I mean, they like that. But like, are you going to believe doctors now? I mean, who's, it's it, they, they, they're going to suffer the consequences of this politicization that that may actually that may actually ultimately be a positive if people see uh if people see sort of appeals to authority as unscientific uh, which they they generally are you know you you need to present the evidence uh not just say because we say so and uh and if that makes people more skeptical 
about some of these pronouncements that are supposedly, you know, the science is settled and this kind of thing, that could be a positive out of yeah. this. Okay, well, thank you very much, Phil. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, I, I, unfortunately, I think we'll be talking to you again. Uh, I don't mean that the way it sounds, but I think this story is not over and uh, we're, we're going to need your your wise thoughts again, probably quite shortly. So uh, thank you very much. Oh, where can people get you? Where can people follow you? Give us your all, where, where, you, where, you're, yep. where you're best at. Uh, I'll give you three things. AmericanCommitment.org is the website for my main organization. If people are interested in those economic policy issues that we said aren't that important anymore, that's where our, uh, my work on those is, AmericanCommitment.org. Uh, the other thing I do, uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity with Steve Moore and Art Laffer and Steve Forbes, we've got a free daily newsletter if people want to get that, uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity.com. Uh, and I'm also a Twitter addict. I'm on there all day. It's just my last name, Kerpen, K-E-R-P-E-N, and that's probably where almost all of my COVID-related stuff is. So yeah. if that's what you're interested in, uh, follow the Twitter. I, I, definitely. I think people should, you know, obviously the other, uh, you can get the other newsletters, but Kerpen, K-E-R-P-E-N on, on Twitter, that's where we follow you. That's why that's why you're on here today, because we saw you on Twitter again saying some very interesting things. So that's the place to go. And uh, thanks very much, Phil. All right. Have a good one. Bye. So, yes, that was a, a great interview there with Phil Kirpin. Um We are living in a world of madness. We were even the, the, the winner of the U.S. Open. Her parents couldn't visit uh, to watch her win because you're not allowed to visit from the U.K., but you can come from Mexico. You can come from Germany. Some of your more observant viewers, by the way, if you're watching this on YouTube, may have noticed that Anne is looking not quite herself at the moment. Um, she is wearing a hat, but top of the morning to you. So Anne has gone off to spend more quality time with her doctors, and we're joined now by Brian Godawa, uh, screenwriter extraordinaire, novelist extraordinaire, and screenwriter of the My Son Hunter movie. So Brian, as you know, I think we've mentioned on previous podcasts, is a dirty, stinking rat who's left the Los Angeles sinking ship and uh, has gone to Texas. And yeah, uh, y'all, yeah, and uh, is wearing Anne's hat for some reason that I'm sure because he, I'm confident in my own masculinity, right? To, to be able to take her place, I just wanted to wear the signature hat, that okay? Was, that was it, okay? It's a free country, apparently. Uh, so Brian's here, actually, Brian is back in LA because Brian today is going to spend some quality time. By the way, can I interrupt you like you guys interrupt each other because then that will be. Would that be good? You see, Brian, right. you have to put in the time. You have to mar be married to me for 20 years before you're allowed to interrupt me. Right, I'm gone. <laughs> That's right. Brian is actually here because he's going to spend some quality time with the director of My Son Hunter, Robert Davi, uh, and they're going to go through the script and finesse it. So Brian is a writer, screenwriter, uh, perhaps best known for writing the, the movie To End All Wars, which starred Kiefer Sutherland. Um, but he is also a wonderful author of... Biblical fiction, is that the correct yeah. phrase for it, uh, where he takes parts of the Bible and fictionalizes aspects of it that are not covered by the Bible, fills in the gaps, so to speak. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. Although so, I hate to have to come back to L.A. and uh, visit, but, uh, you know, I guess it's okay. It's and, a little cold here, but, you know. It's cold in Venice. You hate having coming <laughs> back. Uh, tell me, tell me... 
No, you miss it, Brian. Come no, on. I don't hate it. I don't hate it, but I don't I don't miss it yet. So I've been gone almost a year. I don't miss it yet. There are things about there are things about California that I miss, obviously. Well, you know, obviously the weather. You know? Right. But that's like that's the easy one. But I, I honestly I didn't realize how much I would miss it until I was gone. And then it's like and then when we didn't have the weather, and it's just like, wow, I started having weather dreams, actually. Weather kind of dreams? Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, so. What, what happens in a weather dream? <laughs> well, it, seriously, I was like, I, I noticed that I was in a balmy day with palm trees. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And and I woke up that morning, I'm like going, oh, that's my first weather dream of missing the weather. So, but, you know, and of course, there's some great people here. But, um, you know. Thank you for that, Other friend. than that, uh, you know, everything else is going to hell in a handbasket, so. So you're, you're, you're quite smug about leaving, aren't you, Brian? Yeah, and I am proud to be a Texan. I already consider myself a Texan. So now people who are moving now into our area from Los Angeles, I go, hey, wait a minute now. Yeah. Leave Los Angeles, you know, whatever, California. Leave California with you. We yes. don't want no Californication here. Well, well you're, not, you're not sort of go, we don't want your sword around here and, and spit chewing tobacco in their, almost. at their feet. I'm almost By the way, I'm not sure you'll be allowed back at the Texas wearing a hat like that. No, that's true. It has to be, yeah. Yeah, it has to be yeah. a certain kind of hat, yeah. So... Brian, I suppose you're here to work with Robert uh, for a few days on the script of My Son Hunter. So we're we're hoping to make a big announcement about casting very soon. Uh, we, we've already chosen Robert Davi, Davi to be the director. I'm so excited that he's, he's part of it. My Son Hunter is going to be the biopic about Hunter Biden. And it's basically been funded by you guys, our listeners, our viewers. Uh, we still are short, by the way. If you want to go to mysonhunter.com, I know... Many of you have gone. If you if you haven't, please look. We're we're. I mean, this guy's not cheap, right? <laughs> this guy is not cheap, you know. And uh, you see the hotel bill he's running out. I mean, yeah. come on. I mean, it's just out of all, out of all. Oi! Uh, so we it is, there are expenses in all seriousness. There are expenses that we're we're now incurring bills. Please, if you haven't given now and you thought about it, please go to mysonhunter.com. If you have given, think about giving again. We've had, I think it's almost like 10,000 people have made this film happen. We've raised one point, over 1.6 million. The target is 2.5. Help us make it happen. And let's get the truth out there. Because the media, by the way, are not going to cover this story unless they're forced to. Hollywood's not going to cover it. It's, it's all up to you to get this story out there. And listen, if I can just throw something in there too. Like, all you know, all my life I've been a conservative and a Christian in Hollywood. And I've been wanting to, you know, sort of make tell stories and make movies. And, you know, when I come across conservatives or Christians who complain about Hollywood, why don't they make anything that we like, you know, yada, yada. And this is the kind of opportunity that we, we are guerrilla filmmakers now. And if you want to, if you really are, if you want some good quality material that has a viewpoint that you can appreciate instead of always being preached at from woke culture, then support this. Put your money where your mouth is. And I don't mean to be too condescending, but it's I say that because I, so many just complain and, and very little do anything. So um, I'll be I'll be the I'll be the condescending preacher uh, for today. You know, get out that wallet book. Get that money in. You know, <laughs> but, you. I, but I mean it because it's just yeah. it's just so needed. It's just so needed. And if we don't pony up. We're not going to get this stuff yeah. made. Tell people what a screenwriter is, by the way, um, for those who don't know. Someone who writes screens. No. So, uh, yeah. So screenwriter is is the, the individual who writes the words on the page 
It's like, uh, it's the words on the page from which everything comes. In other words, um, as, the, as the screenwriter writes the story, writes the action, writes what's going to happen, writes all the dialogue, all that stuff, most people know about that, obviously. But, but that becomes the blueprint, the blueprint for the movie. And uh, it's, you know, when in, in the end, a lot of people say, you know, like Spielberg has said, you know, if it ain't on a page, it ain't on the stage. And, and there's, there is some acknowledgement of, in a sense, if it all starts with a great script. If you don't have mm-hmm. a great script yep. and great writing, it's not going to, yeah. it's not going to be, right? Yeah, totally, totally. However, however, in reality, by the time that movie gets made, there are hun- you know, hundreds of inputs. It's, you know, producers have input. The director comes on board and he shapes it to be his baby, his project, right? And everybody uh, around the director, they all bring um, added perspectives and added help to the script mm-hmm. that helps blossom it to be yeah. the ultimately the final movie. No, but, but you're right. The writer, you know, I think, who was it? Zelnick or said, you know, the, the writer is the most important person in Hollywood, but don't tell him. Yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, he'll ask for more money. Yeah, uh, the, you know the the line is, you know, you can make a, a a bad movie out of a good script, but you can't make a good movie out of a bad script. Yeah, and I think at the moment, are we on what are we on version twenty two? Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Um, um, but it's it's it that doesn't mean we rewrote the whole thing no. over twenty two times. But what happens is, anytime there's a, there's a, a significant change, like say you guys call me and say, hey, you know, um, we've realized this one scene we we can't afford this set or something, so yeah. give it a different set, or let's work a little bit on the dialogue in this moment. Yes, and I'll make that one change. But because it's a change to the script, you know, it has to yeah. become a new a new draft. So yeah, I mean, and that is another reason, by the way, why we need funding is because you know we we're making decisions now, and we're actually saying to Brian, look, you you in fact there's one scene. I'm thinking about that yeah. you've just written and you know uh, somebody I said it's a great scene yeah. and, and I'm talking to the line producer and the line producer says yeah but is it a $20,000 scene yeah. right is it a great is it so great and, and, and I'm thinking we can't afford that right yeah because we've there's so many other demands on the money and yeah. th- this is why we need your help is so the the best scenes get in this movie that the, the, the money is not an object uh, to stop us telling the truth, and so. these guys, these guys, you know, I look. Obviously, I've got vested interest, but I'm, you know, I, I mean this when I say they seek to make the most. Uh, yep. They seek to do the best with the money they have. They're responsible. They're frugal. You know, they're shooting it in Serbia, and that's in in order to be able to get double your money's worth for what you can get because they want the budget to look better than how much it actually is. Yeah. Type of thing. That, that was the thing we did with 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 Gosnell as well was. You know, the one thing I wanted our movie to look like was every other Hollywood movie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, you see so many Christian and so many conservative movies, and they don't look like movies. You can yeah. spot them on. You're flicking through the TV, and you stop at a movie. You can spot immediately that it's a Christian yeah. or a conservative movie. In general, now, obviously, yeah. in fact, they're, they're, improv- they're, better now. they're improving every day. Like uh, that movie, I can only imagine... Uh, yeah. You know, you know, the, you know, it had quality. I think this thing in Christian movies where you can't show people drinking alcohol, yeah. and that I think that movie suffered because of that because the father character he wasn't able to descend into the gutter as much, yeah. so the redemption wasn't as, as powerful. As powerful. Yeah. Um, if you don't portray evil accurately, if you don't portray the world out of which you're being redeemed, then the redemption you're showing in the story is not going to have power. Yes. So, but. But that was a great movie, and there are there are great movies being made now in, in the Christian sphere. But for a lot, you know, and but there are really bad ones as well in the, in the conservative sphere. So, I mean, uh, we wanted the Gosnell movie to look like a Hollywood movie, and we want 
my son Hunter to look like a Hollywood movie. We want people to flick through the TV channels, come across this or watch it on a streamer and come across this. And it looks like because young people are not going to watch something that doesn't look like a movie. Yeah. You know, they're going to be suspicious. It's going to watch that weird thing. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like they watch TikTok. You can spot a TikTok video the moment it opens, right? Yeah. It doesn't even need it. So, they, you know, people are very responsive to genres and to the way things should look. We, we started with this process where, so I'm the producer, and I said to you, what did I say to you? Uh, by the way, can I just say something? Please take that hat off. <laughs> you, don't you like this little thing back here? No, it's... Uh, uh, How's my hair look? Yes, thank okay. you. God. For an old man. Phew. I yes. just, it was just... <laughs> It was killing me looking at you there. Okay. People should vote in the com- YouTube comments whether they like Brian with the hat or without the hat. And if you like him with the hat, you'll be banned. Okay. okay. So how did this start? You basically said, Brian, we, we, we need some ge- something genius. No, I'm just kidding. And that guy wasn't available, so we hired you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <good laughs> Boom. That was good. <laughs> But in all seriousness, so, so when this stuff, um, I, I don't remember exactly what happened because obviously the laptop thing had been around for, for a little bit, but you, you basically came and said, you know, we got to do a movie about the laptop because it was so important and so significant. And w- there was still a lot yet that we didn't know about it, mm-hmm. right? And um, but, but we also know, well, how can you deal with something like all the stuff that's on the laptop? There's just so much material. And it's like, mm-hmm. how are you going to make it? An- entertaining story too we don't want it to be a documentary no you said that no this is a dramatic film how can we dramatize it and i thought well you know in order to dramatize so much material we got to be able to sort of go through it quickly and the the pacing needs to be there and the kind of movies that work well with that are satires you know and of course we've talked a lot about political satires that we love Mm -hmm. like Wolf of Wall Street, Wag the Dog, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know Austin Powers, right? Yes. And so it was sort of like, well, let's let's do it. Let's go in that direction. Yeah. Let's do this satire because then you can like jump in and out and and put facts or whatever you know, put interesting information that would take a long time in a normal narrative to play out yeah. in a satire. You can like like a like like skits. Right? Yes. So that that was that was the origin of our genre, and I think that. Uh, we, we also have already written, we, which we can't speak about, but we've already written a, a previous movie that has that same genre to it. Yes. And we're, we're realizing this, this works well for what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose one thing we wanted to make sure not to do was not to demonize any, not to demonize Hunter Biden. Uh, in fact, it wasn't so much funny. It's not that I care about Hunter Biden demonizing him. No, I, I don't want to attack someone for their flaws or their addictions. As we say, we're Irish, we can't attack anyone for our addictions. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's not good storytelling to no. to demonize people. No, because when you watch all the political movies, I don't even know the names because I, I, yeah. I try watch them and I just can't anymore. You know, that Hollywood puts out, you know, all the anti-Trump stuff and mm-hmm. the anti-Republican stuff. It's just ridiculous. It's just hate speech, you know, per- masquerading as a, as a movie. And, and it's like, well, I don't want to do, I don't want to do the opposite of that where it turns people off, right? And the other thing is, though, the reason why I, the reason why I was drawn to this was, and it was something we talked about together because we both had this notion, was there was a fascinating human story at the center of this. It wasn't just the, the laptop is the, 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 the hook, right? The but, MacGuffin, as, yeah, uh, yeah. as Hitchcock would say. Yeah, it's the hook that brings us in and it's, it's a fast, you know. And we thought, of course, his connection to strippers. So there's some stuff going on there that's that's funny, interesting, or whatever. But we 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 both had had been concerned about this 
father-son relationship, not just between mm. Joe and Hunter, but with Bo, the, you know, the, the, the brother and the son that had died, right? Yeah. And, and as we looked into it, it's like, wow, this is a very, it's a, it's a, uh, what's the word? it's a tragedy. It's yeah. a tragic, but it's a tragedy is based on a lot of times they have some good intent. Like in other words, we're not going to make their relationship look bad. It's a, it's a relationship between the three of them that struggles through the issues of the favorite son, yeah. the F up son, mm-hmm. the father who, who, you know, and, and the perfection that they're all seeking and the love and acceptance. It's all classic yeah. family father, son stories. Well, so, I mean, I say this is a mixture of Austin Powers meets King Lear meets Hearts of Cards, but yeah. King Lear is a very important part there. And King Lear was about favorite daughters and favorites, yeah. uh, not favorite daughters and the mess up daughters and that family dynamic. And, and people trying, people accepting flaws and not accepting flaws. Yes. So, you know, Shakespeare was at this hundreds of years ago. and uh, Exactly. And that's what drew me to it because, and the other thing was, was the flaws. So obviously the flaws are fascinating. We already know a lot about Hunter's flaws or what, actually there's a lot that's suppressed, I guess, in the mm. news, right? But, but if you look into it at all, you see, you know, he's not just a uh, drug addict. He's he's an addictive personality. He's addicted to sex and falling in love with strippers and all all this really, I hate to say, but interesting, entertaining material. But like you said, not in a way of demonizing, yeah. in a way of saying, look, this is the tragedy of flawed characters seeking humanity, seeking to yeah. find their humanity, but having these flaws rip them apart. Yeah. So that's why I think it's not and demonizing. I, I remember speaking to a, a famous Hollywood figure, I won't mention his name, and uh, I was trying to get him involved in this project. He was too busy with his own projects. But, and I said, well, what do you think of the project? And he, leans back and he thinks like this and he goes, you know, ultimately Hunter hates his father, right? And I go, what? And he goes, yeah. he goes, like, why else would you want, this is the guy who's not the favorite son. Bo was the favorite son. He will yeah. never attain. And now it's even worse. Bo's dead. So Bo is super perfect. You know, yeah. uh, he will never attain that perfection. And at the know, same time, he's, Hunter's trying to Get the love of his father. Yes, that's the idea. Yes. That's uh, the that's uh, the human struggle that but, we a lot of us go. But he, but you know why else did he leave? This is guys. Why else did he leave the laptop unattended for a year? In some ways, he wanted to sabotage. I mean, he wanted to make money out of his father, but he also wanted to sabotage his political campaign in some way. You know, yeah. it was just there's a, there's this tension there between the two of them that is just multi layered and really fascinating. And I think you've really captured that in the script. And so you're going over now after that. We're literally leaving this interview and going over to. Robert, what are you and Robert going to work on? What are you going to do in the next couple of days? Well, this is part of the process. This is Robert Davi, the director of My Son Hunter. So part of the process of making a movie is, like I said, you know, starts with the screenwriter all by himself, sitting there in front of the screen writing. But then you, once you get a director, the director comes on and he has to make it his vision too. And he already loves the script, but there's things, changes, or we just have to go through it step by step to, to make sure everything's as good as can be. And we're going to find lines that might need, might need to be changed or maybe things he wants to add that he's been thinking of. Mm-hmm. And I'll try to, I'll incorporate those into the draft so that it makes it more more his as well because he's the guy who's going to take it from here yeah. and get it made obviously with the because of the producers but the yeah. director is the one that has to then make it happen on screen very much so very much so so he has to be happy with every line Absolutely. of it as well and believe it and, yeah. and want to make it so 
Island, we're going to let you go. I have to go and spend some time, quality time with Anne's doctors now and surgeons, etc. And you are going to go to Robert Davy and surgically uh, work. Yes. Get it? You say surgically work yeah. on the script. See what Trying I did to there? protect my baby while still yes. giving in because it's now his baby. Yeah. So, but I'll, yeah. So, no, I was making the surgical metaphor. You see, I was, yeah, I know. but you interrupted. Right? You, you, well, made, well, a, you made a better baby. No, but you made a baby metaphor. You took the, my metaphor and ignored it and made it. Right. I'm, I'm, this is my podcast. I use them. I do the metaphors, by the way. Thanks, Anne. Yeah, I did what you said. Yeah, I, I get the metaphors. I get the, you know. <laughs> Gee. Yeah, welcome, welcome to LA, Brian. Yeah, well, I, I, I got to come on again next time. Oh yeah, if you're invited, yeah, yeah. sure, yeah, next time. Oh, we're busy. Oh God, I didn't really. Oh, next week. Oh no, we're busy that week, that month, that year. Well, Magda's got to be on my side. Yeah. Yes. No. Thank you very much, folks, for watching uh, and listening to uh, the Alan Phelan scoop. Don't forget to go to mysonhunter.com to make this happen, make this movie happen. Um, and uh, we will see you next week. Bye. And we'll have a full update on Anne's medical condition then. Bye. Bye. Bye.